All right, let's take our Bibles. Let's open them to uh, Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, we're in the middle of a study called Who? Me. And uh, it's, a study, it's a study of the life of Gideon, but it's really a study of how God uses ordinary people to change circumstances. Judges chapter 7, and this morning we're going to be looking at a story, an episode in the life of Gideon that you've probably heard before. You probably know this story. If you grew up in Sunday school, uh, you will know the story that we're talking about. But uh, I'm, I'm confident that the things we're going to say this morning are going to uh, be new to you and be encouraging to you. Now, at some point in God's eternal plan, at some point in God's eternal plan, he envisioned some works that he wanted to accomplish in the world, something he wanted to do in the world, uh, some good works with worldwide impact. And he, en- he envisioned uh, them being accomplished by a particular woman. And th- this would be a woman that he would use to create art, to create art in a, in a manner that uh, would blow your mind to think about. And he envisioned this woman uh, to, uh, that she would inspire the world with her, uh, uh, with her ability to overcome challenging circumstances in a way that other people would be able to look at her and see what she's accomplished in, in her hard circumstances and maybe begin to think, wow, maybe if she can do that, I could do it too. God would use her ability to work through tragedy and still come out trusting Him uh, to inspire other people to do the same. And He would use her to advocate for handicapped people uh, around the world, advocating for their value and protecting their dignity and fighting for their ability to access the rest of the world like, like other people do. And these were the works that God created this woman to accomplish. So, 50 years ago, when she was 17, God watched over her when she dove into the waters of the Chesapeake Bay and hit a shallow bottom, fractured her neck, became paralyzed, and lost the the use of her arms and her legs. But over the, the 50 years that have followed, in her weakness, from her wheelchair, Johnny Erickson Tata has had a tremendous impact on the world drawing beautiful art with her mouth, drawing attention to the dignity and humanity of disabled people, and drawing people to Jesus. Another man that God envisioned making a significant impact in the world was a man, he wanted to, he wanted to make this man a pastor. He wanted to give this, this man a powerful ability to communicate the gospel to ordinary people in the most influential city in the world. And so God gave this man great oratory gifts. He gave this man a sharp intellect. And at 19 years old, 19, God established this young man as the pastor of the largest church in the largest city in the world. And by the time he was in his early 20s, he was preaching to crowds as many as 10,000 people some weeks. He was the most famous preacher of his day in his early 20s. What people don't know about Charles Spurgeon and his ministry in London is that although he is one of the most influential pastors in the history of Christianity, God allowed him to experience severe, debilitating bouts of depression. And he had such severe gout that he suffered for decades in chronic crippling pain. And some nights during his ministry, uh, for, for various periods of time, he's, he's, he's only able to sleep 
an hour at a time. The pastor of the most influential church in the most influential city in the world. Now, I know you can think of other examples. You can think of other examples much closer to home, much closer to your your own personal experience of people who followed Jesus and have still experienced hardship and difficulty and lack of resources. So why does God do this? Why does God uh, allow his people? What's, what's going on when God's people experience weakness and frailty and lack of resources? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning in this study called Who? Me? It's a study of the life of Gideon, but really it's a study of how God uses people to change circumstances. And today we get to the heart of our study. This chapter, chapter 7, is when it all comes together. This is the climactic chapter of Gideon's life. And God is going to use Gideon to change circumstances and to accomplish his work in the world, but he's going to do it in a way that you would not expect. So we're going to read the whole account. We're going to read all of Judges chapter 7, the whole thing. And as we read, here's what I want you to do. So, so get ready. Get it on your, on your phone or uh, open your Bible. Make sure it's ready because we're going to read the whole thing. And as we read, I want you to ask a question in the back of your mind. I want you to be asking this question. What is God doing here? Why is God doing this the way that he's doing this? Uh, what is God's objective here? Is it to drive out the Midianites or is God up to something else? That's the question to ask as we read this passage. Joshua chapter 7. Early in the morning, Jerubbaal that is Gideon. Remember he got this name, he tore down the idol of Baal and they gave him the name the guy who, you know, the guy who won against Baal. So that's uh, that's his name, nickname Jerubbaal. And Gideon and all of his men camped at the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, "You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands." In order that Israel may not boast against me that her strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will sift them for you there. And I If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. And then uh, the Lord, Yahweh, said to him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. And 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths, and the rest got down on their knees to drink. And Yahweh said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. You can go, leave your trumpet with me. So now the the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. And during the night, Yahweh said to Gideon, get up. Go down against the camp, because I am going to give it into your hands. 
If you're afraid to attack, I, I just reduced you to 300 men. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they're saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. And so, this is interesting, in the middle of the night, he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. They went to the Midianite camp. And the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples, this, these allied forces against Israel, they were, they'd settled in the valley as thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Remember the camel's secret weapon? But Gideon arrived into the Midianite camp in the middle of the night, just as a man was, or, that, that when God brought him there, just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, and it struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. And his friend responded, Well, this can be nothing more than the sword of, the, the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! Yahweh has given the Midianite camp into your hands. And dividing in, uh, the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. And when I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then uh, from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord... And for Gideon. Now, we're not going to talk about that this morning, but that's important to remember for next Sunday, what Gideon instructs these men to, to shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. And Gideon and the hundred men with him, verse, verse 19, reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. So it's midnight. That's the middle watch. The beginning of the middle night. So, so that a few soldiers, just a few soldiers are up. Just the soldiers who are changing guard. Everyone else, deep sleep just after they'd changed guard, and they blew their trumpets, and they broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their rights the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, A sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Three verbs, ran, crying, fled. That's what the Midianites did. And when the 300 trumpets sounded, Yahweh caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And the army fled to Bethshetah toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Mehalah near, uh, near Tabath. And it goes on to describe that. We'll look at, we'll look at some of those uh, ideas next Sunday. So you've heard this story. You know this story. You could have told the story. Uh, if you grew up in Sunday school, you, uh, you understand God, what, what, you, know, you know, the story. Uh, but I want to make sure we understand what's going on before we talk about it. Some, something really important that we want to talk about this morning. I mean, what's going on here in this passage? The timeless truth that, that God has for us today is really important. 
It's really important, but we've got to understand our story first. So uh, it starts out at the spring of Herod. Uh, that word, that Hebrew word, Herod, means trembling. It's the spring of trembling. I'm pretty sure it's got its name after this event, all right? Not before. The spring of trembling. Uh, God wanted to get rid of the Midianites, and there were a bunch of them, as thick as locusts. Uh, too, with too many camels to count, is what our passage says. Chapter 8 indicates that we're talking about over 100,000 Midianite soldiers. That's what you see in chapter 8. Now, Gideon has 30,000, 32,000. And God says, 32,000, 100,000, Gideon, you have too many men. Now, uh, and he says, I, I'll tell you what to do. You just tell the men, whoever's afraid, you guys can go home. And... Uh, uh, 22,000 men were like, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. And, and uh, 20,000, 22,000 men went home. Now we're down, uh, now we're down to 10,000 men. It's 10 against 1. And God says, still too many men. And he comes up with a plan for how to get rid of some more men. And it has to do with how they, uh, how they will go and get a drink at the spring. Most of the men will go and get down on their knees and they put their faces in the water, but a few cup the water and bring their hands to their mouth and drink the water that way. Now, pastors and scholars, you know, they've debated why God chose one group over the other, and, and there's been a lot of barn-burning sermons have been preached on uh, why cupping water is better than kneeling and putting your face in the water, because cupping water means that you're alert and you're oh, on the watch, and so you're a better soldier, and that God wanted the best of these 300 men, uh, the best 300 guys that he could come up with. He wanted the guys who were really alert and on the ball. There isn't any of that here. We just read it, Right? There isn't anything that says one group was smarter or more alert or they ended up being better. There's no judging here on who drinks what and how. There's no judging. I don't, I don't think, honestly, that one way was better than the other. I don't think God is choosing the best soldiers here or making some kind of moral commentary on, on how these men go and get drinks. What God wants to do is He wants to come up with a lopsided ratio. And He knows there are... Two types of people in the world. There are slurpers and sippers. And there are a whole lot more slurpers than there are sippers. So he wants to go with the sippers. The guys, the soldiers who are quirky enough to reach down into the water, bring it up to their mouth and drink. And ultimately, Gideon ends up with only 300 men. The ratio now is a thousand Midianites to three Israelites. Someone pointed out uh, in between services, that would be like if we filled every chair in this auditorium, about 250 chairs, and then we went and took on the Tri-Cities. It'd be like that. That's the ratio. And verse 8 says, Gideon kept the 300. That word kept is like took fast hold of. It's like he grabbed them by the shirt as they were walking away with the 10,000, you know. And Gideon grabs them by the shirt and says, no, you're staying with me. And ultimately, he takes these 300 men, they conduct a surprise attack. They create chaos in the middle of the night that sends, you know, with their trumpets and their lanterns, and it sends the Midianites into a killing frenzy in the fog of war. And Gideon wins the battle. So that's the story. What's going on here? What's going on here? Well, we just read kind of what's going on. 
God is depleting Gideon's army. But why is he doing that? Now, remember the question. We said we want to read this passage. The question we want to ask is, what is God up to? What is God's objective in this encounter? What is his objective? Is it driving out the Midianites? Or is it maybe something more? I think we can all agree that there's something more that God is doing in this passage. God has bigger fish to fry than just winning a battle. He has a spiritual goal in mind. And that spiritual goal that God has in mind is He wants to strengthen His relationship with His people. So you remember the context. Uh, Judges is this, is this book of sp- cycles and downward spirals that, that uh, just keep going on. God's people turn away from Him and worship idols, and then they experience discipline. They come back to Him, and they worship Him, and, uh, and then they turn away from Him. And God wants to stop this. He wants to stop this cycle that His people keep getting caught in. See, God's not just interested in winning this battle. God could have dro- driven the Midianites out with, with no problem. I mean, God could have done any number of things that would have driven these, these uh, Midianites out of the land. But God wants to do that. He wants to drive the Midianites out. But He wants to do something more than that. At the same time that He drives them out, He wants to cultivate a relationship with His people. He wants to cultivate a relationship with Gideon and the nation of Israel to stop this silly cycle of turning away from Him. And so it's not just, this chapter 7 is not just about winning the war. It's about winning the relationship and having, bringing someone who has big trust problems, Gideon, the nation of Israel, and, and doing something in their lives to help them get over those trust problems and begin to trust the true God. So that's God's goal. And the method that he uses is really important. The method that God uses, I would call Depletion. Depletion. God depletes His people. God reduces His people to a point where the only possible way they will have any chance is if God shows up in a big way. And like so many other principles that we've seen so far in our study, this uh, principle is all over our Bibles. It's all over our Bibles. It's actually, I think, one of the big ideas of the Bible that God uses depletion He uses depletion to build trust and to safeguard our relationship with Him. God thins the ranks of our resources in order to build our relationship with Him. You see, when God depletes us, a couple of important things happen that that strengthen our relationship with Him and safeguard our relationship with Him. The first thing that happens when God depletes, when God thins the ranks of our resources, the first thing that happens is it cultivates trust in Him. It kind of puts us in a position where we're forced to trust God. Uh, God was putting Gideon in a difficult spot. I mean, think, think. Of, of Gideon. I mean, Gideon's already a chicken. We already know that. If we don't know anything about Gideon yet, we know he's a scaredy cat. He's, he's really a timid guy. And here God is taking away his soldiers. God puts Gideon in this difficult spot because God's doing something big in Gideon's life. 
Notice these two things going on in this chapter that seem like they're at odds with each other. On the one hand, uh, God is, is putting Gideon on edge. He's taking this already timid guy and he's putting him in an impossible situation. I mean, if this guy was a, was a, a pessimist before, you know, I mean, he's like, oh, we are doomed, you know. On the one hand, God puts Gideon on edge and takes this timid man and depletes his resources and whittles him down to just 300 guys. On the other hand, notice what else is happening in the same chapter at the same time. God is lovingly, graciously reassuring Gideon. That's what this dream is all about. Uh, God takes Gideon and says, listen, if you're still afraid, well, yeah, I only have 300 men, and I can't even count the camels on the other side, you know. If you're still afraid, you and your servant, because I know you're not going to do this by yourself, right? So you get your servant, and you guys go to the Midianite camp. You can't even, you know, like locusts, kind of fit in, and, and just stop at a tent, a random tent, I guess, and listen. And so Gideon does that, and he hears a Midianite talking about a dream he had where he got ran over by a barley roll. And his friend interprets that dream, and Gideon and his servant overhear. And the interpretation of the dream is those people who thresh barley in wine presses and are so afraid of us, they're going to roll over us. They're, that's the interpretation. Gideon overhears that. And so do you notice that there are two things going on here? God, on the one hand, is saying, no, you can't have this. God, on the one hand, is whittling him down to to nothing and depleting his resources while at the same time reassuring him that it's going to be okay. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Where part of your life says, God, you're taking away every prop I had... And on the other hand, you're telling me this is going to work. That's exactly what Gideon was going through. And here's what God is doing. He is shifting what Gideon is trusting in. He's done it already. You remember when he told Gideon, tear down that, 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 idol, that idol to Baal? And, and what's God doing there? He's, he's telling Gideon, listen, you're going to go to battle without anybody else but me to help you. So he's already shifted his trust from Baal to himself. And now he's shifting his trust from Gideon's trust from trusting in his soldiers to to trusting in him. God is shifting Gideon from trusting lots of soldiers to trusting a mysterious God who at random can lead him through sovereign events to overhear in one tent out of thousands a particular message that's going to be a special encouragement to him. So God is saying, listen, don't trust your resources. Trust me, I'm sovereign. I'm at work in the world. I know what I'm doing. And he knows that's exactly what Gideon's gonna, gonna, going to need to hear. So the message is clear. Don't trust soldiers. Trust me. And that's true for you today. Maybe you're experiencing depletion in your life in some way. You feel reduced to a nub. You don't have the physical resources. You don't have the emotional resources to deal with the challenges that you have in front of you. Why does God let you live like this? 
It's because God wants to build a relationship with you. He wants you to trust Him. God doesn't want you to trust your soldiers. That's not going to be good for your relationship with Him. God doesn't want you to trust your soldiers. He doesn't want you to trust your brains. He doesn't want you to trust your dollars. He doesn't want you to trust your ability to work hard and get things done. God wants you to trust Him. See, God could fix your problems, right? Just like that, no sweat. True? God could fix your problems, but God isn't about fixing our problems. He's about building a relationship with His people. And He uses depletion to do that because depletion helps Him build a relationship with us. Depletion drives us to a trusting relationship in God alone. So God uses depletion to build our relationship with Him. That's one reason God uses depletion. A second thing that depletion does, that God uses, is is it's it's through depletion that uh, God, God, say it this way, God uses depletion to prevent conceit in us and to make sure that God gets the glory. And that's the one time that God kind of shows his cards is in verse 2. When God says, listen, you have too many men. So in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, send those guys out. Send them away. That's the one time we get an insight into God's motivation here. And the motivation is this. So that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. So God depletes Israel's army because He wants to make sure that he gets the credit for this. Why? Why does God care? Uh, Is he that insecure? You know, and he needs to make sure that he gets the credit for everything that happens. Is is it selfish of him? It's not selfish. It's not insecure. It's it's about safeguarding the relationship because here's the deal. Uh, Your relationship with God is dependent on you having a right view of him and a right view of yourself. And if those get out of sorts, you don't have a genuine relationship with God anymore. It's vital to the relationship that Israel remembers who God is and who they are. That's the only thing that's going to build their relationship. That's the only thing that's going to keep them from that downward spiral again, is if they really remember who He is and who they are, and they don't make Him less, and they don't make themselves more. And you start getting that hierarchy mixed up. You start getting that balance, that equilibrium messed up, and all of a sudden you don't really have a genuine relationship with the true God anymore. And so God wants to make sure that they maintain that equilibrium, that right view of who He is and who they are, so that they can to safeguard their relationship. That's why He wants the glory, because He wants them to remember who does what in this relationship. And here's what makes this so important. Here's what makes depletion so important in preventing our conceit and maintaining our relationship with Him. It's because God wants to do something tricky here. God wants to use you for more than you add up to. God wants to use you for more than you add up to. Jesus wants to use you to make disciples. And make a difference in the world. The Spirit has gifted you with spiritual gifts that you can use in the, in the body and in the world. Spiritual enablings that 
He's given you that can make an eternal impact in the lives of other people and in God's purposes in the world. God has created you to do good works that He prepared in advance for you to do. You. And all of this, it's more than we add up to. It's more than we add up to. And, and if God uses us to do more than we add up to, there's a good chance, knowing you and knowing me, that we're going to get the wrong idea. And we're going to think that it's us. We're going to get the wrong idea when we start being used for more than we add up to. And so God uses depletion. He uses depletion. He wants to use us for more than we add up to. So He uses depletion so that we can accomplish these things without disrupting our relationship with Him. Without making more of ourselves and less of Him than is really true. It's about safeguarding the relationship when He uses us to do more than we add up to. A great example of that is Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle. God used Paul to do more than Paul adds up to for sure. I mean, Paul was a persecutor of the church. His main relationship with the church for years was was hunting down Christians and having them thrown in prison. And God had different plans for him. And so God turned his life around and gave him some amazing gifts. And God gave him some pretty amazing circumstances. Now, I'm drawing on 2 Corinthians 12 when I share these things with you. You ought to go home today and read 2 Corinthians 12. God, God gave Paul some pretty remarkable experiences. One of those experiences, this is going to sound crazy, but God actually took Paul, brought him into paradise. I'm not exactly sure what that is even. God brought him into paradise, how it's translated in the New International Version, and instructed him on the role that he wants him to play in the church. So, God calls Paul, brings him to heaven to instruct him, gives him brilliance and passion. He's a visionary man, and God wants to use him to jumpstart the gospel in the decades after Jesus' resurrection. It's an important part of of God's work around the world to jumpstart the gospel from, from Palestine to the rest of the world. And it's a big job. It's a big job. It's way more than anyone adds up to. So in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God gave him something else in addition to these amazing gifts and these great opportunities. God gave him something called a thorn in the flesh. A thorn in the flesh, which was probably a physical ailment that God allowed Paul to suffer from on a chronic basis. And he says three times he pleaded with God to take this away from him. Three times he begged. Now this is Paul. He's an apostle. God did some other ama- God brought him into paradise to give him some marching orders. This is Paul. He wrote like two-thirds of our New Testament. You'd think that when he'd say, God, would you please take this from me, that God would say, oh yeah, right, you're Paul. Yeah, I'll do that for you. But instead, God allowed him to continue with this thorn in the flesh. And God did this to deplete him. God did this to deplete Paul and keep him dependent on God. Paul says God did this. This is 2 Corinthians 12, 7. God did this to keep me from becoming conceited. 
He actually says that twice in that verse. It's only translated one time because it kind of seems redundant in the English translation. But he actually says two times, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, 7. I told you you should go home and read it. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. God did this to prevent me from becoming conceited. It's similar to what God did in Charles Spurgeon's life. God wanted to use Charles Spurgeon in a big way in the city of London when London was the most powerful city in the world and could play an enormously important role in the spread of the gospel around the world. So God had this big job He wanted to accomplish and He wanted to start early. So He takes this young man and He puts him in a prominent, prominent position. So how do you keep... Here's the problems that God has to deal with. You think God has it easy. How do you keep a 20-year-old humble when he's preaching to thousands of people every week? Those are the problems God has. How do you keep a 20-year-old humble when he's preaching to thousands of people every week? You deplete him. You deplete him to the point of dependence. Spurgeon, he ministered constantly in depletion. This prominent pastor suffering debilitating bouts of depression throughout his life, suffering from critics. I mean, he had awful critics in his day, suffering from chronic, crippling levels of pain that that, uh, prevented him from walking, prevented him from sleeping, and another thing that happened in Spurgeon's early ministry. Here's how you keep a 20-year-old humble. One day in his 20s, he's preaching to thousands of people in his church. I mean, packed. You've got people who will sit. Every chair is taken and people who are standing around all the, all the sides. And I said that he had critics. One day in the middle of a sermon, one of these critics yells, fire! Okay, this happened. You could read about it. Fire! And thousands of people start to, start to run for the exits. And people, uh, uh, several people trampled to death in the middle of one of Spurgeon's sermons in his early 20s. Why? Because God wanted to deplete. He wanted to deplete Charles Spurgeon. He, and, and, and this episode, it haunted Spurgeon for the rest of his ministry and kept him in a point of dependence. It taught him something early on, stayed with him throughout his ministry to keep him depleted, honestly. So that at one point in his life, decades into his ministry, he writes these words. He's explaining why God allowed him to experience these things. And he says this, that this was the surest way. These things, these hard things, they're the surest way to teach us that we are not necessary to God's work. And that when we are most useful, he can easily do without us. Charles Spurgeon learned that through depletion. And that's so true. And if we think anything else, if if we think anything other than we we are the most useful, he can easily do without us. If we think anything else, then we have distorted a true relationship with God. And we have made him less than he is. And we have made ourselves more than we are. And you can't have a relationship with God when that equilibrium is messed up. So God depletes us in order to build our trust, in order to prevent our conceit, and to safeguard our relationship with Him, while at the same time, He uses us 
for more than we add up to. Another way to put it, you want to be just really direct about it, God purposely imposes limitations on us. God purposely imposes limitations on you. God purposely imposes different limitations on on each of us, depending on our circumstances. Some of you, God has purposely imposed limitations on your health. He doesn't want you to be too healthy. Some of you, God has purposely, purposely put limitations on your bank account. He doesn't want you too wealthy. Some of you, God has purposely put limits on your natural ability. He doesn't want you too naturally talented in the things that He's called you to do. Why is that? Why is He doing that and at the same time calling me to more than I add up to? Why is He calling on you to make disciples? Why is He calling on you to make a difference and calling on you to change circumstances and giving you a vision for His work in the world and calling, you, calling on you to do more than you add up to? Well, it's not because He can't add. It's not because He's miscalculated somehow in calling you. He's not a mistake. It's because He wants you to both obey Him and trust Him and at the same time, accomplish some important things in the world, in the lives of people, in the advance of the gospel. God wants to do His work through you, yes. But He also wants to do His work in you. In order to do both of those, He's got to keep us at a point of depletion. How else would Johnny Erickson Tata have ever impacted the millions of people that she's impacted uh, with calm and grace and saving grace through her life. She would never have done that in a healthy body. It wouldn't have happened. God used her accident, tragic as it was, God used her accident to draw her back into a relationship with Him when she was pulling away. And then He used that accident to bring grace to the world. common grace and saving grace. But to do that, God had to use depletion. So in the words of one author, when you are down to nothing, God is up to something. Paul actually says, 2 Corinthians 12, you should read it sometime. Paul actually says, I delight in depletion. I delight in depletion. How could he say that? Because he knows that when he is being depleted, God is up to something. This morning you may relate to this. You may know something about depletion. You may know something about depletion in your health or your finances or your emotions or your life plan or your natural abilities, or your relationships. You may, have, you may be experiencing depletion in one or all of these areas. You may feel like you are down to nothing. If your perseverance in a hard situation looks like more than you add up to, if your vision for the world, to change the world around you, you want to see some things different, but they seem to be beyond your ability. If God is directing you to make disciples and, and make a difference in a way that seems beyond your ability, He has not miscalculated. He is up to something. 
He is up to something. He is drawing you into a closer relationship with Him, deeper trust in Him, and at the same time putting you in a position where He can get His work done through you. And the way to experience that closer relationship and, and God's ability to work, do His work through you is to respond to this challenge that He's given you. Gideon, he could have said, you know, I don't think so. 300 guys and a trumpet, you know, this is not for me. I'm going, back. I'm going home. If he'd have done that, God's work would not have gotten done. What Gideon had to do is he had to say, let's do it. And by us, I mean you. And I'll show up. Right? Uh, the, the, the way to experience God's enabling and depletion is just to go along with Him and say, yes. Yes. And then delight in that depletion. Because that depletion is going to drive you into a relationship with God. And it's going to drive you into doing His work. So delight in depletion. Now this morning, what I wish I could do is I wish I could get in your head. I wish I could talk with you. I wish I could understand the things that, are, that you've been thinking about as we've been talking about this message. I wish I could... I wish I could see the categories of your life that you've been uh, rummaging through and the situations that you've been thinking about in your own area of depletion. And I wish we could get together and talk about what that feels like and what that looks like and what God might be doing. But you've got someone better than me. You've got God's Spirit living in you. And I'm confident that the things that have been coming to your mind this morning. There's a good chance the things that you've been rifling through as we've been talking about these things and you've been thinking about your area of depletion, there's a good chance that this is God's Spirit talking to you about these things, reminding you on the one hand you're being reduced to nothing and on the other hand God is up to something, that He's drawing you to trust Him and not your own resources. That He wants to do this because He wants to cultivate a close relationship with you. He, doesn't, he wants to use you for more than you add up to, but He doesn't want that to endanger your dependence on Him. So that's God's Spirit bringing these things up in your mind. That's God talking to you and bringing these two contradictory ideas into the right order and reminding you that what He wants you to do is say yes to Him in these challenging circumstances. And that's how God's work gets done in the world. And that's how God's work gets done in you. And God's about doing both of those things. So this morning, what I want to do is I want you to assume that where, whatever, where, whatever's in your mind about feeling depleted, that that's God talking to you through His Spirit. And I want you just to say yes to Him. I want you to process it, tell Him it's hard, or, but say yes. And tell Him that you want to go with Him so that He can do His work in you and through you. I want to give you just a minute to do that. So if you'll bow your heads. And I just want to give you a, a quiet moment between you and the Lord for you to process some of this depletion with Him and for you to tell Him yes. I want, to, I want to trust you. I want to act in obedience even in this 
state of depletion, and I know that you'll help me. Father, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters, this, this faith family. I want to pray for everyone here who has some sense of their depletion in an area of health or challenging circumstances or finances or relationship or just the challenge of doing the things that you've called them to do. I pray that through your Spirit, you will remind us that this depletion is actually you drawing us into relationship with you. I pray that you would teach us how to delight in these things because it reminds us that you are up to something. And I pray for every person here this morning, especially those who feel pretty overwhelmed right now this week. I pray that you will encourage them, that you will let them know that that even this morning, their presence here this morning is part of your plan for reminding them. It's kind of like overhearing the Midianites' dream, showing up here this morning and hearing this message is you reminding them that you're at work in their lives. You're with them. God, I pray that you will encourage us with this truth. And we ask this through Jesus. Amen.